Amen. That hail sovereign love was also that which we'll be considering from Matthew chapter 7. As you remain standing, we'll read the word from the text this morning, and then we'll turn our attention closely to it as the Spirit leads. Let us pray. Father, lead us now as we open your word and open our hearts that we may hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Judge not that ye be not judged. For with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged, and with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again. And why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but considereth not the beam that is in thine own eye? Or how wilt thou say to thy brother, Let me pull out the mote out of thine eye, and behold, a beam is in thine own eye? Thou hypocrite, first cast out the beam out of thine own eye, and then thou shalt see clearly to cast the mote out of thy brother's eye. Give not that which is holy unto the dogs, neither cast ye pearls before swine, lest they trample them under feet, and turn again and rend you. Our Father, this is a passage that we lean heavily upon the Spirit of God now to give us clarity and balance and understanding And we pray that you would guide us with your spirit to hear the applications to our own hearts, to our own lives, that we unto your glory will give our lives a living sacrifice in this area. Lord, we pray that you would do a transformation in our hearts, even over the course of the next 45 minutes. And we pray this for your sake. Amen. You may be seated. There is not a passage, I don't believe, in the entire Sermon on the Mount that demands more careful handling than this particular passage. In fact, it is D. Martin Lloyd-Jones' Sermon on the Mount and his number of messages that he preached that was compiled for us, written down, and we have access to, that he coined the phrase, walking on the knife edge, of which you have heard many times, from this pulpit pertaining to this passage. In verses five, 1 through 5, the Lord is saying something about not judging others. And in verse 6, He seems to require some form of discernment. And what the Lord is doing here is introducing us to matters of judging and discernment and critical thinking. But we in our fallen nature are prone to one of two extremes. We're prone to gravitate toward one of two extremes off of that knife edge. And there is seldom a proper balance in our own lives as it pertains to these two extremes. On the far extreme, on one side, we have an easy tolerance, and that is what American culture has been given over to today. You are raised in a nation and in a country who is breathing the air of easy tolerance. Everyone's viewpoint must be tolerated. Diversity training is given in every corporation so that we might learn to be more tolerant of other people's viewpoints. That is founded on a very dangerous heresy of believing that there is no objective truth. 
And once you throw out that there is no objective truth, you throw out the ballast and you throw out all the thing else and it's basically your viewpoint and his viewpoint and my viewpoint. There's nothing objective that will be the standard over us. And so we must be tolerant lest we kill each other. And yet there's a tendency on the part of the church who is also breathing the air of the culture of this nation to be swayed into this extreme for fear of being judgmental and dogmatic and strong. There was a time when in the pulpits of America there were strong men who were unbridled in their principles, assertive with the truth, unapologetic. And yet those men today are almost dismissed in the church for being too imbalanced. The leader who is held up today in the church, in the pulpits across America, is the one who is accommodating. He's soft. He's cooperative. He's not assertive. He's not forceful. Easy tolerance. On the other extreme, over here, would be the extreme of judgmentalism. And this is the extreme that the Lord is singling out here in verses 1 through 5. And here the tendency is when the bar is held high in any group of people, no matter what that group of people would be, whether it's a group of musicians and the bar is held high for the excellence of the glory of God, or whether it is some homeschoolers whose academics are held high for the glory of God, whether it be a soccer team who wants to win the World Cup for the whatever reason. It can be any group where the bar is held high. When those people are trained with a stricter view and educated to a higher standard, the tendency would then be to turn that very thing severely upon other people. Now, in an effort to obtain excellence for ourselves, we cannot go into another sphere and turn into critics. Here at Heritage, we are postured toward excellence in what we do. We are postured toward high standards in personal accountability, unapologetically so. That is a deliberate mental view of how we think and a volitional choice of what we choose. And yet there is some deliberate differences between perhaps our church and other broader evangelical churches, even other Reformed churches who would believe exactly the same theology, the same doctrine that we do. 
There are broader evangelical churches that have a tendency not to hold their people accountable. There are philosophies of ministry and philosophies of even preaching that would hold this, even among Reformed churches. There's a philosophy of preaching today that says, I am going to try to faithfully exposit the Word and leave all of the application to the Holy Spirit to work in the hearts of the people. It's not up to the preacher to make any applications. There's a very deliberate choice in philosophy. When it comes to people's personal lives throughout the week, they're in some of those broader evangelical churches, there's a reticence to expect people to conform themselves to what has been preached on the Lord's Day. Now, in our ministry, there's more to it. I think you know this already. We live in a community one with another. We live very close, and every community is going to function at some level with some community standards. We expect people to adjust themselves in their behavior to the teaching of the Word of God. We believe our members are accountable for their testimonies for the cause of Jesus Christ in their daily lives Monday through Saturday as much as when they come here on the Lord's Day. We've been taught that we are Christians who are always on display. That we are responsible for our appearance, for our behavior, and for our conversations. We're responsible for our attitudes, for our online presence, for the places you go, the people you hang out with. You're accountable, and and we believe that. We believe in 1 Corinthians 11 that if you would judge yourselves, meaning each other here in this body, we would not be judged in a more severe way by our, our Creator. So our church has never been about something that we put off and put on when we come here on the Lord's Day. But because we believe in such a high cultivation of the gospel, and that's really what this is about when we're seeking excellence and accountability and personal high standards of holiness, this is about high cultivation of the gospel. It is not the gospel. It's different. There is a distinction, but it is a high cultivation of the life that the gospel produces. And when we do hold to high standards of application, there's a real danger, a great propensity for us to become really judgmental people. And therein is what the Lord is dealing with Heritage Church about this morning. It is true of me, and it's probably true of you as well. And by the way, if there's someone here thinking to him or herself, yeah, they've got a judgmental spirit, what you're doing is thinking about others in the same way that you should be thinking, that you're judging. See, this message is not for your neighbor. This message is not for your spouse. This message is for you. This is a very personal message today, very particular Now, knowing this, that this passage is really what we need to be very open, very transparent with the Spirit of God about. 
There should be no ribbing. There should be no thinking. There should be this. Spirit of God, deal with me here today. Lay me open. And as we consider this passage here, we want to consider in its totality along with next week's message, righteous judgments. So the scripture frequently does mention the need to make judgments. It, it, it requires us to make discernments and discriminations. And so we need to be balanced in our approach. In fact, John 7 24 says, judge righteous judgments. We are called to examine fruit to see if the tree is good or evil. And on and on it goes. At all of Scripture, we cannot live a faithful Christian life without making judgments. And so next Lord's Day, that's right where He's going when it says, don't give holy to the dog. Well, how do we know <laughs> when to stop casting our pearls before the swine? Who are the, how do we... And that we'll get to next week. But we can't get there before we take the prerequisite this morning and look at verses 1 through 5, which is going to be the negative, and next week he gives us the positive. But before we can get to even making righteous judgments, we have to be reset. We have to be repostured. We have to have our button go back to zero in our spirit so that we can be right here. Right here. And not over here. Or not even drifting. So the first thing that the Lord does in chapter 7 verse 1 is He then stops us in our tracks. He halts us right where we're going. Judge not. Stop judging would be the better and more literal translation. This verb is the same verb form we had back in chapter 6 verse 19. And the assumption here in the way that this verb form, the the way that the grammar of this verb is working is such that there is an assumption that the action of the verb is going on and now he says, stop it! And what he's doing is he's stopping us in our tracks by saying, okay, you're judging. Stop your judging. Stop right now. Stop it. That's, That's what the verb is implying here. And what he's doing is he's getting that reset. He's pushing that reset button. Okay. So you've got to own that right now. Lord, I've, I've strayed in this area. I have been looking too much outward and not as enough inward. And I have judged. I've made unrighteous judgments. And, and now, right now, we confess our sins and we stop it. So let's just stop right now and repent. Our Father in heaven. We stop in an unusual way in the preaching of your word, asking that you would forgive us for judging and that you would right now empower us with your spirit to stop and put off the old man and put on the new and that we would love our neighbor as we love ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen. Now there's the reasons for stopping it. One of the primary reasons for stop judging our neighbor is not given to us here, but is given to us several times in other passages, and that's given 
very explicitly to us in James 4.12. You want to turn there, you may. If not, I'm going to read it to you. James 4.12 has some context to it, but I'll only read the one verse, and I think it'll be very clear to you. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who art thou to judgest another? Now, there's the primary reason why you are not to judge It's because there is only one authorized judge. And he is the one that gave the law by which all are judged. And we dare not assume his position in judging others. Because he says in the end there, Who art thou to judge your brother? It's not yours to have. It's not yours to assert. It's not yours to claim. It's not our role. It's not been given to us. It will happen. And yet we will also be before that tribunal, before that great judgment as well. But we should know something here, that our Lord has made many judgments. In fact, our Lord has already made many judgments for His kingdom and has written a lot of those judgments down in the Bible. He has made hundreds of verdicts already, things that He has already ruled on. And as it stands, there is a royal precedence that He has given to us of what ought to be done in similar cases. And the church is responsible for dealing with those verdicts that Christ has already established. So we will still need to make some judgments. But when we do, we need to be keenly aware that you will be held accountable to the same standard. Now you and I ought not to judge men. This is the idea of condemning people. But there are many passages of Scripture that we must insist on the judgments that the Lord has already given. See, that's why it's a very difficult thing for us to stay on this knife edge. But we are to be aware that the same standard by which we judge, we ourselves will be judged. Okay? We need to be very keenly aware when we come into a place to make a discernment on a verdict that Jesus has already made and that has to be applied, we are then to be keenly aware that the degree of which we pass that verdict of Christ, then we will be judged. And that is why we are to go and help brothers, but we are to do it in the spirit of meekness, spirit of love and compassion. See, this is where the consideration comes in. Our tendency here, see, when we're having to to think about these matters, our personal tendency is to exaggerate other people's case. When we look outward, we tend to think about things and blow them up and and amplify them and and, and exaggerate them and, and we put a spin on it in such a way that it is a worst possible kind of spin when we're looking outward and we're looking at others and making these unfair judgments. Or we presume to know their motives of why they did what they did. Or we are quick to reach a conclusion. 
Or we are quick to criticize or even confront. Or we're quick to send that email or, or voice a complaint or run to our Facebook account and quickly judge. Yet on the other hand, we are very slow to deal with ourselves. And we are all this way. Every one of us. There's not a single person in this room that's not that way. And then perhaps when we learn that our judgment wasn't quite right and we then have been confronted in some of those matters or it didn't turn out quite the way it was or the motive was made more clear or we found out more facts to the case, then we tend to minimize our words. Oh, I I didn't mean it like that. Or was I not joking? (laughs) You know, we give every benefit of doubt to our actions and we expect everybody else to do the same. We argue that our motives were good. We had good intentions. And what we have is a very wrong double standard. We exaggerate the other person's fault and we minimize our own. We are quick to pay attention to someone else's life, but slow to pay attention to our own. And the Lord is cautioning us here. In verses 3 and 4, He gives us twofold questions. The first one is He's saying, what are you looking at? And the second one is, what are you talking about? The first one He gives us in verse 3, and why do you look? At the speck in your brother's eye. And that's the word there, speck, just a little splinter. But you don't consider, you're not thinking about it. You're not even thinking about the beam, a big timber, in your own. What are you looking at? So the first question he puts us is why are we looking at what we are? The word speck here that Jesus is using, this term here, is really a small defect. We would say he's got a blind spot. He's got a little speck in his eye. He's got a little blind spot he's not seeing. He can't see right because he's got something in his his vision. And that's the point here because we are so fixated on the thought that he doesn't even see the point. When in reality, it's a very small thing. The Lord is informing us here that we are really missing it. It is we who are missing the point, not the one who has the speck. There's something wrong. And what's wrong is that you're not even noticing, you're not even considering the big old beam of the log sticking out of your own eye when you're trying to get the speck and the splinter out of your neighbors. You're fixated on your brother's eye. And we don't even consider that something bigger and more problematic is in our own. But if I had a big timber hanging out of my eye, I'm not going to see very well, and that's the main point. If I had a big timber hanging out of my eye, I'm not going to see very well, and that is his point. 
who really is the blind guy. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones has helped us to be able to consider a few things as you do a self-evaluation. I'm going to rehearse some of those things that he put in his sermon so many years ago to suggest to us some tendencies that we might have to suggest that maybe the log is in our own eye. So I want you to consider these things. Number one, you might have a log in your eye if, now he didn't put it this way, but I think I'll enjoy doing it. If you have a readiness to share your opinions. If we are quick to opinionate on or about someone else, that's one sign you might be focused on the small things and have a log in your own eye. A quickness, a readiness to opinionate. A second reason he gave is when we substitute prejudice for principle. Now, if you are a person given to substituting prejudice for principle, you may have a log in your own eye. The thing that we are so focused on is not something the Bible makes a principle of, but has become a principle to us. But in reality, it really just is our preference. If you were to press that preference or that prejudice, if you will, through the grid of Scripture, and you find out that that really is not a principle, but maybe a very strong preference of yours, that you have begun to make a principle, then perhaps there is a log in your own eye. And there probably is. A third indicator that Jones has given to us, Lloyd-Jones, is when you substitute personalities for principles. Now this happens sometimes over doctrinal issues where the issue itself is not properly understood. And you have different sides on the issue, perhaps, of a theological debate. And yet, you don't understand the principles, you don't understand the doctrine, and you don't understand the debate, but you have found a side for some reason or another, and you side with a personality, or you side against the personality. And if that's the case, you may have a log in your own eye when you side against the personality without understanding the principles that he stands for. Boy, is this so true. We could avoid so many arguments and problems if we don't attack the personalities but actually go for an understanding of the principles. Number four, you may have a log in your own eye when you don't take time to inquire about all the facts of the case. Perhaps you saw it this way, but it really happened that way. Perhaps your perspective was skewed. Perhaps you thought he or she said that when he or she did not, or you sensed this or that, or you went on a gut feel. Uh, No, when you don't have all the facts of the case, and you make a judgment, and you have a log in your eye. And lastly, fifth, you have a log in your eye when you are unwilling to find or accept another explanation that leaves the person in the clear. You are unwilling to find 
or accept another explanation, that will leave that person in the clear. You have already made your mind up. You have sealed that shut. You have sealed it in a box and it will never be opened again. Guilty, 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 you have said. And no matter what else you hear, you will not reverse the verdict. You will not open up the facts once again. There's little mercy or a charitable spirit. There's a spirit of this passing final judgment. And if that's true, you have a big log in your eye. So if any of those characteristics are a characteristic of your spirit, not just of a particular case, but it is characterized of the spirit's then it's time to stop looking at others and to be quiet and to consider yourself in the beam that everybody else is noticing but you. Now in verse 3, the Lord is not questioning that there's a speck in your neighbor's eye. He's not questioning that there's something there. But if you judge another for the speck in his eye, you will be dealt with just as he taught us in verses 1 and 2. See, for with the same judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you measure, that will be measured to you. And just realize that if you judge the speck, you're going to be judged by the same standard. And you need to be willing to be dealt with about all the specks in your life. And you need to ask yourself, are you willing to be scrutinized in your life about every little small thing? Or are you hoping that our Lord will have mercy on all those little things and consider the overall general direction of my life? And let love cover a multitude of transgressions on all those other specks. Now in question two, he gives us beginning at verse four. Now what are you looking at, he says. Now what are you saying, verse four? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye, and the big plank is in your own eye? Why are you saying what you are saying? This is talking about someone taking it upon himself to correct somebody else. And there are times when this needs to be done, but how we do that? And how can we do that if we have a plank in our own eye? I love timber framing, and so when I think of this passage, I don't think of a two-by-four. I had a Sunday school teacher one time, long time ago, and he said, you know, splinter versus a two-by-four. All I can think of is a big eight-by-eight. Rough sawn, oak, timber, just protruding that I can't even turn my head without knocking a whole bunch of people down. It is so obvious to everybody but myself. And how can you say what you're saying if you can't clearly deal with with what is so obvious to everyone else. If you have a log or this big beam in your own eye, you cannot see clearly to help your neighbor. 
We think we might be helping when in fact we may be hurting. And we're not even seeing clearly enough to properly evaluate the circumstance and we can do a lot of damage. How would you think about it if you were going in for surgery and the team is prepping you and you're still hearing the activity around the the table as they wheel you into the surgical room and the doctor has just gotten all scrubbed up and you can overhear him telling the surgical team, man, I can't see very well today. And it's a very intricate, detailed surgery they're about to do on you, maybe your brain. And he comes in and says, you know, someone sprayed me with cleaner accidentally and my vision has been foggy for the past two days and I still can't quite see clearly. And he's going to operate on you in a matter of minutes. It's very likely he's going to do a lot more harm than he is going to be doing good. See, that's why in a church the leadership must keep our lives right. We've got to keep the logs out. If we are to maintain the integrity of the gospel and sound doctrine and a position of sound orthopraxis in our church, in our lives, the leadership must be above reproach and blameless. How can we even see clearly if we have logs hanging out of our eyes? How can we help people if timbers are constantly in our eyes? We won't make sound judgment calls. We won't see it right and we won't call it right. But if we are engaging in what the Lord is describing in verses 1 through 4, He calls it what it is as He begins verse 5. Hypocrite! He says that with an explanation point. Hypocrite! That's what the Lord calls it. He calls it hypocrisy. And then He tells us what to do about it. Notice the Lord is not telling us, mind your own business. That's not what He said. Just forget it. Just mind your own business. That's not what He says. Verse 5. First, remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. He tells us what to do about this. The Lord is not merely calling us to ignore everything, but rather to take the log out of our own eye, and then you can see clearly to help your neighbor. First, deal with your own impediment. Start with yourself as a pastor friend of mine teaches his church, be strict with yourself and generous toward everyone else. Be strict with yourself and be generous toward everyone else. Well, how can we be sure that we're in a position of verse 5? In other words, how can we be sure that we've got all the logs out of our own eyes, particularly if we can't see it, before we confront another person? Because as soon as something comes up on our radar screen, our flags go up, and we think that, or we begin to say, or we begin to gossip, or we begin to talk, or we begin to point out or fixate upon our brother's splinter, which because of our skewed vision, we see it as a log, but before we do that, again, Lloyd-Jones would help us here. 
He says, before we take it upon ourselves to confront a brother, carefully sit down and read 1 Corinthians 13. That great chapter on love. And see if that love is something that you are embracing, that that is a characteristic of your spirit. Make sure that that chapter of love is what it's all about, that you're going to pursue the principle and not the person. You're going to pursue the sin that the person may be aggravated with, but you're not going to condemn the person in that at the same time. You need to sit down and just refresh your spirit in 1 Corinthians 13 and condition the soil of your own heart by really examining yourself in the light of that truth. And if you're still a little uncertain, go read it every day for a whole week, digesting it. Now we'll close back at that passage that we read a minute ago from Galatians 5.13. And I'm going to turn there, and that'll be the last place we... We, we address this morning. Galatians 5.13, as he begins that wonderful chapter, as he's been dealing with the Galatians, he did have to make some discernment with them because in chapter 3 he's addressing how they have now slipped back. And now he's exhorting them toward the end. He says in verse 1 of Galatians 5, Stand fast in the liberty wherewith Christ has set you free. And then he goes down to verse 13. And he says, For you, brethren, have not, or for you, brethren, have been called to liberty, only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh. Now, a lot of people have taken that one verse right there in the first half of it, and they have addressed the idea of using Christian liberties. And therefore, we need to make sure we don't use our Christian liberties to the extent that now we abuse those Christian liberties. But yet, if you look at the context, and and while that may be true, that's not exactly how Paul is using this. Verse 13 but through love serve one another. Now notice what the the opportunity of the flesh is. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, but if you bite and devour one another, there's the flesh, there's the opportunity of the flesh that, that you are not to abuse your liberty for the opportunity of the flesh by devouring and biting one another, but you are to love. The liberty is a law of love for God and for your neighbor. So you need to love, and through love, serve one another. So I close with that one statement once again as we consider what Christ is telling us. Be strict with ourselves and generous toward everyone else. This is the spirit of the kingdom of our Lord. In chapter 5, he brought us through the characteristics of his kingdom. In chapter 6, he begins to reveal to us that God is watching in every little detail and he cares for you. And now in chapter 7, he's turning it to relationships of those in his kingdom. So, be strict with yourself and generous toward everyone else, and so fulfill the law of love. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this reminder, for this gentle rebuke, for this correction in our lives. And yes, we desire to seek a very high standard of the 
high cultivation of the garden, but we do not want to turn that upon other people in a judgmental spirit. So Lord, help us to be strict with ourselves and to be generous and charitable toward everyone else. And we pray that you would give us the wisdom to walk with our God upon that knife edge of where the truth is found and where the truth is lived. And we pray that you would guide us even in the course of this week. And may this change areas in our relationships with our spouse and with our children, with our parents, with our neighbor, with those in the pew in front of us and behind us and with those in our community. And we pray, Lord, you would help us to walk in humility and walk in love and walk in the spirit and walk in the light. And we pray you would be glorified in applying the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to our lives this day with this truth. In Jesus' name, amen.